0: Welcome back to the April podcast of Kaleidopod, the place where Kaleidoscope and me, Chris Perry, does his best to try and explain the origins of some of the various audio recordings we have found over the years, most of which you will never have heard before today, some of which you might have heard on commercial CDs or DVDs, but you probably never realise they came from us. This is 35 years' worth of audio recording we're talking about here, and we're going back to the very distant edges of time, the cutting edge. Of student radio to start off with. This is me on the Decaffeinated Banana Show on the 23rd of April 1989. You're a lead from Blue House. That's right, yeah. When did you actually start the band and what gave you the idea to call it Blue
1: House? Well, I mean, we're, we're I mean, let's face it, Chris, I mean, you're here and you're a very attractive man and we're sexy guys ourselves. And so there's always a, that edge of sexual intrigue there. <laughs> And we just thought we'd just, uh, well, there's already a group called the House of Love around who are actually playing at the University of Kent, and we were originally supporting them, and I was talking to Guy Chapwick out of the band a couple of weeks ago, and he actually wasn't too complimentary, so we pulled out of the sports slot. So, uh, so, so um, but no, we started the band in, when was it, Baz? Oh, well, about 18 months ago. Yeah, about 18 months ago, after, well, after a fair, actually, it was a fair, I remember that, and I remember some... interesting. Yeah, we like fun fairs. We've got this song called Freak Show, which has never been performed because basically it was just a one take um, recording and it's uh, extremely offensive. It's got this, well, I don't know whether they can actually tell this on there. But it's got the line of, uh, come on, what? It's got this line, come on then, you bastards, come on then, come on then. And it's about this, uh, whenever we have a fair, in, in my hometown, there's always loads of fights. There's always loads and loads of trouble. And I mean, we're a topical band. I mean, we can. If one of us gets beaten up, we're likely to have a song about it on the Monday after the oh, after the Saturday night. So Tommy
0: Joe, what sort of music does Blue House play?
1: Well, we actually describe it as as rock house because there's no other way you can particularly describe. But we actually eat a lot of fish and chips, and we're a very English band. And we like fish and chips. We like uh, the sea. We like the middle of the countryside, and we like things like Trafalgar Square. And we like, um, well, we hate, actually hate Benjamin Britten, which is probably one of the reasons we call the band Blue House in the first place. Do you see your musical style progressing in any way over the next 10 to 20 years? 20 years? Well, I mean, I don't think we'll be going in, in, in five years' time. I don't. I mean, somebody said that if you do, you're do doing the same thing for five years, you you become a hippie, you become crap. With I room. It's bad for profitability as well It's you don't much money. you don't what well, you do actually, but I mean we're not after money I mean, only only Mr. glum here is <laughs> is after money. well, as your manager it, yes. it will it will progress. I mean this uh, the new songs I mean you you will you will have heard the tape. the new songs are things like are sort song of based Lucy based on television. It's a sort of angular type guitars. It's a bit of noise, um even a bit of even a bit of sort of dance music. Some we do a lot of things. We're quite an eclectic type sound. We do a lot of things. Now, Joe, music critics have noted a certain amount of violence. Is this deliberate? A lot of the songs are based on things like Manson and, and The Family and things like that uh, and David Berkowitz and, and other sort of noted killers. The lead guitarist, Rick, is certainly very interested in this sort of thing. It's some... Um, it's a touchy point. A lot of the songs are, are basically about violence. We come from quite a violent inland town in in uh, uh, in the south. I mean, there is a lot more violence in the south than there used to be. We don't we don't really think that the tape does us justice because uh, for as a live act because uh, we a lot more forward when we're saving live. I mean, usually when we're when we're live we're um, a lot more noisy, but a lot more aggressive, and the tape is good and clear. And you get you get an idea of the songs. It's a clean sort of uh, impression of the song, but usually we're, we're certainly a lot more aggressive and violent. It's called Heaven is a place where PA's are never late, and Jesus Christ and Hendrix drink Jack Daniels by the crate. It's not actually called that; it's in fact called Godhead. But we haven't got round to recording that. It's an acid
0: mix, an acid dance mix of one of the songs on there. I see, which will see. be done within the next three weeks. And indeed, you might be wondering why on earth I am, you know, recording myself on the decaffeinated banana show well because even then when I was a student with long hair and a big beard I felt it was important to preserve some archive of what I was doing and since nobody else was listening to me from 10 o'clock on a Friday night until one o'clock on a Saturday morning I thought I'd better listen to me instead. The next two items are from the collection of John Liddle kindly transferred by Neil Ingo and uh, John Liddle's collection is a very interesting array of stuff from across the years including a lot of Apollo uh, moon landing stuff that we'll look at probably later on in the year but to begin with this is Concord landing at Fairford uh, live on TV the 9th of April 1969 10 miles out then approaching to the west you see that dotted line there
2: with the figure 5 and 10 in the uh, sort of top right hand corner of your picture well that's where 002 is at this moment. Wind here has dropped a bit. I thought it was gusting to 15 knots still while ago. I'd make it about 10 now. Dead down the runway, Uh, Brian Trubshaw stipulated that he wouldn't land in more than a 12-knot crosswind. He certainly hasn't got it. Uh, Captain Jimmy Andrews, you would confirm that conditions are just about ideal? Yes, they're very good indeed, and I flew earlier on, and the air is pretty smooth. That was another interesting thing. He said he would not fly in more than light turbulence. I can understand that. Well, it is only light turbulence today. Alan Gilbrook, uh, keeping his eye on the radar scope, tells me it's eight miles out. So this means now that he's bringing the speed down to 170 knots. We've got him on our ground to our picture. Here he comes. Here comes 002, approaching for her first landing at Fairford. 10,000 feet of runway ahead of him, jolly nearly two miles. Now we can see the wisp of smoke hanging astern, coming down a a glide approach uh, angle of three degrees, coming down the ILS approach, Uh, speed 170 knots, about 200 miles an hour gradually uh, coming back on the throttle. No, probably in a a fixed throttle situation, just driving her in now, would you say, Jim? Yes, uh, with the nose up and a little more power on than we would normally have on a more conventional airplane. And uh, you will see now this pronounced nose-up attitude, which is exaggerated by the slender delta configuration of the wing she comes in like a great praying mantis at least uh, one artist dean piers has been inspired to do drawing or painting rather of this remarkable attitude before she'd flown and i must say it's come out just just look at that coming in like a a flying creature a prehistoric monster instead of the airliner of the future and britain's great stake in the future my guess is that he has broken off and is going to do a fly round, jimmy well, he said he might do one if he had some time to spare just to extend the trip a little it looks if like he's going to do that i think so too now he will have called his intention on the rt uh, on the his radio telephone if he is doing that that is on a discrete frequency which we are prohibited from listening to and the helicopter has just arrived at the far end of the runway as Brian Trumpshaw comes in from the east. The helicopter containing Sir George Edwards uh, and Andre Tuchauer and General Ziegler has just landed at this end of the runway. Well, now Trumpshaw, I am not prepared to say whether he's coming in to land or whether he's going to you. Yes, I think he's coming in to land. He's committed. Yes, he's going to bring her in first time. He's resisted the temptation to do a deliberate overfly to show the lines of Concorde, and indeed we couldn't get a better impression of them than we have at this shot now. Coming in uh, 50 feet in the hold-off zone, it's gonna be very interesting to compare this landing with the Toulouse one. Down he goes, slight bounce, stick forward, and he's on the ground. Arrest, shoot, streamed, braking now. An excellent landing, the Canberra Chase aircraft flying on ahead now. Speed coming down, lots of runway to spare, still going quite fast however. It's good it's good. Shoot dropped, rest of the slowing down procedure on the brakes now. Again, Captain Jimmy Andrews, what did you think of that landing? Beautiful. It really was uh, a perfect landing. A little bit of smirk from the tires as he touched down. And he's doing a controlled slowdown because there's no fighting overheating the brakes if he doesn't have to. Those brakes, uh, incidentally, which are incapable of locking into a skid but there was certainly no need to do that, although Brian Tropshaw did, of course, test those out adequately at Fulton earlier on, and that was one of the hiccups. You see the pronounced droop-snoot attitude. And now turning off the end of the runway, everything under control, at least ten minutes before Brian Trupshaw can leave the flight deck, at least ten minutes before we'll be able to have a word for him. So, in case you missed it, let's look at that final approach and landing once again. Here it is. coming in now.
0: And indeed, this is the radio version of Moonstrike. A series that, of course, involved World War II bombers, uh, bombing Germany. This is from an episode called No Heroics by Robert Barr. Also missing, this is an extract. In fact, this is the only surviving footage from the episode from the 16th of April 1965 on the light programme. You might as well. Here, most of it.
2: Odile had made her rounds, made her contacts. Next day, Guillaume came into Clermont and went to one of the cafes where he'd arranged to meet her and ran into the first signs of trouble. A
3: cognac, please. Yes, monsieur. Uh, Good day, monsieur. Ah, good day. Three francs. Uh, Thank you. Uh,
2: Waiting for your friend.
3: What? Your friend. Oh, no, 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 just passing. Your little friend, the, the, the little dark one. I don't have a little dark friend, monsieur. The one who plays bull. You play with him. Nice little man. Quick, like a cricket. You're mistaking me for someone else, monsieur. I don't play bull. Have a drink. Oh, thank you, monsieur. You make it another cognac, Jacques. Yes, monsieur. Has, uh, has he gone away? I wouldn't know, he comes here does he oh i used to uh, play ball over there by the trees in the summer good player you played with him <laughs> quick like a <like>, uh, cricket yes <laughs> I, I think i remember him yeah. health monsieur uh, health uh, now if you'll excuse me monsieur uh, work to do you know uh, of course uh, good day monsieur Good day. Good day. well jacques you told me they that... They were friend.
4: friends. I assure you of that. But they used to sit at that table by the window. Mm-hmm. And the little man has gone. Yes, two months ago.
2: As Guillaume left the cafe, a girl who'd been sitting at a pavement table rose and followed him. It was an amateurish effort, and he had no trouble in spotting her and giving her the slip before going to see Odile. Now listen, Odile. You've done all the
3: things London asked you to do. You've settled in Clermont, been to Chateauroux, met the station master. Now you go to Tarbes to find Henri. Today? Now, this afternoon. I think he's in trouble.
5: What's happened?
3: That's what I want you to find out. There's a man asking questions about him, so I came to tell you.
5: Where?
3: Café Bourguignon, so be careful of it. Too many questions. Was I waiting for a friend? A a little dark man? Plays boule. Has he gone away? When does he come back? Well, that's Henri. I want to know what the hell he's been up to and why they're asking questions Who about him. Who was it. asking? A man called Durac. You know him? I've seen him. He hangs around the cafes. And when I left, his girlfriend tried to follow me. Oh, no. it's all right. It's all right. I shook her off. But it would happen at this time.
5: This man, Durac?
3: I'm trying to earn some money, I suppose. Reward for information, doing some work for the Germans. There are some like that.
5: He knows about Henri.
3: I don't know. But be careful.
5: I'll go now.
3: Mm. It's uh, number 23. Now, look out for the plant in the window. If it isn't there, don't go in. And try and find out if, if something has happened. All right. Now right. I'll tell Madame Blanche you've gone off to call on a customer. Oh, and Odile, mm-hmm. uh, call at La Souterraine. They might have heard something.
2: Odile went to the station master, but he'd heard nothing. She took the train to Tarbes. At Henri's house, the plant was in the window, but to be quite sure, Odile made some calls in the street with her cosmetic samples and then went to number 23.
6: Yes? I represent a cosmetic firm, madam. If you've something to show me, come inside. Come in. There was no need to sell anything, mademoiselle. She's here, monsieur. Go in, mademoiselle
3: So, your ordeal What's all this lark for? You're hungry That's right, but why all the Sherlock Holmes stuff? I've been going from door to door I know, I've been watching you Guillaume thinks you're in trouble Who isn't? Hold it till I move the ass Don't want to be disturbed, do we?
0: Our next item features an actor that you probably know best as Doctor Who but I prefer to think of him as the sergeant from Carry On Sergeant or indeed from the army game because that's where he became famous. This is the evening news that told us of the sad death of William Hartnell on the 24th of April, 1975.
7: Died in hospital near his home in Kent. He was 67 and he'd been unwell for some time. Mr Hartnell appeared in many films, often as a tough NCO, and later played the sergeant major in television The Army Game. But it was at uh, the original Doctor Who in the BBC television serial that he became known to millions of children, a role he loved.
6: Yes, I think I can say that I know just exactly where we are. Past and or future? In the future. Very much in the future. We've now reached the distant horizon of an age. An age of
8: peace and prosperity. Now, I'm going to be up.
0: On. on to Comedy Playhouse. This is from the archive of Graham Webb. That was transferred some years ago by Alan Hayes. This is Howard's History of England the 30th of april 1974 as you can probably work out from that it is of course the famous frankie Howard playing beau ramsbotham and patrick newell playing the prince redent see if you can work out who is playing the heckler you're going to hear in this scene well
8: now ladies and gentlemen we come now to the do <laughs> mind please uh, do mind Burns. please okay, this left is left. not a working men's club excuse <laughs> this television camera there now um, we now come to the Royal Pavilion. Now the Royal Pavilion was of course built by the Prince Regent. Prinny in a <laughs> out. Get out all <laughs> BBC now aren't I? Now, built by Prinny in eighteen hundred and seven. 1807 never. Shut your face, you. Now it was <laughs> built by Prinny in 1807. 1809. It
9: was
8: a leap yeah. <laughs> <500. laughs> anyway, it took Prinny twenty years to get it in the state it is today. Of course, in its time, it was the meeting place for all the knobs, and I use the word advisedly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting to continue, please and big place for all the nobs who gathered round Trinity. Now, one of the nobliest of these was Bo Ramsbottom. Bo Ramsbottom. Now, Bo Ramsbottom uh, came and he arrived in Brighton uh, penniless. No dough, no dough at all. But uh, he soon uh, became one of the Regency Bucks.
9: <laughs> <laughs>
8: Look, there's two jokes there. There's dough and bucks. <laughs> Dollars, but how oh. do look, I can't explain every joke. We should be here all night. Never mind. <laughs> Please yourselves. Anyway, the Regency Bucks. Now, Bo Ramsbottom rose from being the fourth... No, he wasn't. He started as uh, an apprentice in the potteries. Potteries. And, uh, finished up as the fourth um, gentleman of the bedchamber.
9: <laughs> the
8: first three gentlemen made the bed. And Bo Ramsbottom. <laughs> You've got it, you're bucking at it <laughs> You've got it the first time. Well now, ladies and gentlemen, let us grope our way, Let me grope, not you. <laughs> let me grope our way, through the passage of time, back to Brighton in the 1800s. Morning, Ramsbottom. Uh, oh. Oh, my stomach went over. <coughs> uh, oh, you see, I thought you were still acting... Uh, I mean, um, <laughs> I assume that a bit of the... Uh, the uh, well, you couldn't have, could you? I mean, not for... I mean, not all at once. <coughs> uh, even you. <laughs> Besides, it's foggy, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is foggy. Yeah. I've just driven down from Windsor, where I've been visiting His Majesty the King, oh, the yeah. father. Yeah. Uh, how is Dad? Dad. <laughs> Bad. Dad. Bad. Mad.
9: Bad, mad? Sad.
8: Yes, very sad. Poor Dada. Gaga.
9: <laughs> dada? Gaga?
8: Poor
6: Beggar.
9: <laughs> oh, it's nothing, it's nothing. i
8: just make a one as I go along. Oh, your royal highness, does that mean to say that you'll soon be George Ivy? George, who? IV, you know, your Roman numerals. IV, you see, your father, your father, daddy is George. I, I, I. But you, are George, IV. I knew we should have got a proper writer. I know he's the producer's cousin, but what does a ferret sexer know about history?
9: <laughs> Any more
8: news? No, not really that damn fellow beau brummel's been going about being sarcastic about me again i don't believe it says i'm fat fat me fat fat Ha! oh ha i quite agree ha ha and thrice ha you're quite right you fat of course you're not fat i mean you're big oh. <laughs> biggish 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 i mean you're you're B- well built, you're chunky. Yeah, you're you. very chunky. Big boned. I mean, you're well built. I mean, you're not exactly skinny, are you? No. Well, I and mean, you know, but you're built. You carry yourself well. Oh yes, very oh, well. Oh, you carry yourself very well. I mean, considering how fat you are.
0: <laughs> so, who do you think, Gordon Peters, Wally Barker, Jimmy Edwards, Nope. Barry Took? Barry Took was the heckler. Now, we often try and feature something of The Goodies, because they're always hilarious, and this is the Saturday Banana Show from the 2nd of December 1978. Beloddy, of course, was the host of that, and, of course, in 1978, The Goodies were still huge. So here is The Goodies, performing A Man's Best Friend is His Duck.
10: Are you still there? What, what's Do your you favourite?
6: Don't. Donna. 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 English is English. your English. Not, oh, Scottish. not
7: Scottish. <laughs> 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 oh, languages, huh?
6: <laughs> yeah, well that was that was the one I ended up doing most of. Yeah. Okay, thanks ever so much, Colin. OK, right. Alan. All right. Bye-bye Donna. I'm afraid it's um, it's singing time for these two and embarrassment time for me. And
9: just plain watching on, time go for me. Plain
6: watching time for them. Give us a give us a snappy introduction, Susanna.
9: <laughs> Alright, this is a snappy introduction, Bill, to give you enough time to charge from the desk to your position with the band. The band is called Pacific Eardrum, and on piano there's Dave McCrae, who I believe is Bill's own musical advisor. He helped put together the banana song and the various other songs. So the Goodies having made enormous fools of themselves already. Here comes their latest song called A Man's Best Friend Is His Duck. <laughs>
6: Many's the time I've been lonely, oh! Many's the time I've felt sad. But now I have found a companion, the best pal that I ever had. Oh, who is it carries the papers when I take him for romps? In the power, oh, it's a dog who comes when I whistle, who sits when I stay, and who doesn't whimper or bark. Your grandfather? Yes, a man's best friend is his duck. His what? Oh, a duck will bring you good luck. Oh, I don't want a buddy who says naughty when I... I don't think to tip my hummingbirds and a hen can do nothing but cloak. There's a man's best friend is his dog. What is a duck? A duck is fidelity with feathers, a watchdog with wet feet. A duck is strong even when wet. When you come home, after a hard day being nibbled by vultures, something will run down the path and meet you. Something who cares. you will suck! And as you settle in your armchair, she'll climb upon your knees. And as she lays her head on your shoulder and lays her egg in your hand, she'll stick her beak in your ear and whisper something. Mm. Mm. And you know you love her. you know who we can see. Your old duck. Oh, yes, a man. Best friend is his duck. Quack, quack! For a duck is well known for its pluck.
9: Quack, quack!
6: If a burglar breaks in, it'll chase him back Quack! scare him away with a spine chilling. will mm. kill him because you can get a very nasty sock if you mock about with a duck. Quack, quack, yet a man's best friend is his dog All together now! Quack, 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 quack. Yes, a man's best friend is his dog!
11: Hooray, <coughs> right, he's gone! Have we got rid of him? Have we got
12: rid of him? Right, if he stays there... <laughs> After all, that, after all that talking then, now we can have words with you. While you were on the phones, there were all sorts of questions going through my head, which came from kids and things during the week. Alright? Yeah. any question to you two. And I want to move in front of the piano, because otherwise we get the piano all in the way of us. Alright? So come and stand my here like little little boys
8: you are. Yeah. Right. We do what we're told. Right. First of all, don't oh, stop moving around, will you? Stop it! Right.
0: Kimball Taylor is
12: a
7: posh name, are you posh, or has your mother got a Rolls-Royce? Mm, yes, yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not posh. My mother has not got a Rolls-Royce, but if you're thinking of sending her one, she'd be very grateful for it. <laughs> it is a posh name. Uh, it's Somebody was trying to get some money, and they failed. If you put the brook and the tailor together, they hoped to inherit some money, and they didn't. It is a posh name, and it's the real name. So your parents are posh? No.
12: No.
0: All right. On a slightly more serious and slightly sinister note as well, This is from the collection of Barry Brown. Some audio reels transferred by Bill, my producer, on this programme. This is from a film night programme. This is the uh, unedited rushes of an interview with Alfred Hitchcock, made in the 1970s.
11: But it seemed to me that uh, in Frenzy it was quite possible the whole plot had been constructed for that one spectacular and already famous sequence in the lorry when the killer is trying to extract a pin. Was that in fact the main focus of the film? I think so, yes. You see, it was
4: the mere fact that the market being a character. I've all chosen stories where the setting is as important as any of the characters. Of course, in this film it is, because from the setting of Covent Garden, you go from potatoes, then from potatoes to potato dust, and dust on the clothes of the culprit. Carp- and finally into a brush
11: and then he's caught. But the script does surely break the first rule of suspense by telling you in the first 10 minutes who the killer is.
4: The first rule of suspense is to tell the audience everything. (laughs) Otherwise, they cannot have any suspense. Whodunits do not contain any suspense. Whodunits contain mystery which is concealment of information, and therefore being mystified is not an emotion. It's like a crossword puzzle. It's an intellectual exercise, whereas suspense of itself is an emotion. Therefore, to get that emotion, you must tell the audience all you can,
11: otherwise you'll never get the emotion. But in telling them that, how much of the script was in fact written to your instructions? I mean, how involved were you in the writing of it?
4: I always am from the beginning. And the treatment is done first and completed in such a manner that the, it's almost as though you ran the film without any sound. And the dialogue on the characters go in after that because it's cinematic. And you're telling their story in pictorial form and should do and must do and not be like a lot of films
11: which are made today, which I consider photographs of people talking. Are you saying then that you would describe a scene and actually Shaffer would go away and write it to, to that? That's right, yes, sure. Well, we would agree upon it together.
4: In other words, I bring him into the direction of the picture.
11: I don't interpret his script. And certain sequences, I'm thinking particularly of the ones with the inspector and his gourmet wife at home, do seem to have a particular Hitchcock stamp on them. Well, the reason for that is because in all these
4: films, you get that inevitable Scotland Yard office scene, or an FBI office scene, where the chief inspector says, uh, uh, well, what do you think, George? And... George says, "Well, in view of the fact that uh, he was last seen on you get a very dull scene which is full of police talk. So I decided to get a mother, and uh, Shapper wrote a mother, uh, as you see her on the screen now, not only talking police talk in her way, and plot talk. But uh, in the addition,
11: she's a, a gourmet cook. She's, in fact, his wife, not his mother. His wife having a good partner. But now, the certain, uh, a certain amount of the press reviews, uh, while commenting on, on the comedy of those scenes, have also commented on the violence of the first killing in particular, yeah. the overt violence, and suggested that perhaps you needn't have been quite as explicit as you were. Why not? What is worth doing is worth doing well. There wasn't a feeling that you had to live up to straw dogs or to a new feeling of violence. I've never seen straw dogs, so I wouldn't know anything about that.
4: I never copy other films ever because uh, I usually spend most of the time avoiding the cliché. For example, in uh, North by Northwest, I had to put the hero, Cary Grant, on the spot so the cliché would have been putting him under a lamp, wet roads, a pool of light, a black cat slithering along the wall, a face peering from the window, and a black limousine coming along. And I decided against all that as being the worst kind of cliché for this scene. So I decided to do it in the open, bright sunshine Without a tree or a house in sight. And then out of nowhere comes a crop duster and chases him around. Well, immediately that has now become a cliche of us. The next time you saw it was in a Bond picture when uh, Bond was chased by a helicopter. Then you saw a French picture called That Man from Rio where a man is chased by a motorboat. Then in a later film, You saw a man chased by a car. So what was once the avoidance of a cliché has become a cliché.
0: And if you listen very carefully to the next lot of clips, and if you look very carefully around your computer screen, see if you can spot the cameo by Alfred Hitchcock later on in the programme. And here's your chance. Perhaps he's lurking in the background, smoking a cigar and listening to The Beatles. This is an interview from 1964 of uh the beatles and this was found in the lost shows collection from the radio 4 uh, campaign run by charles norton back in the uh 19 oh when was it? when he did it 2007 i think he started it i think that's when he did it anyway uh what about your impression of american adults i mean we hear you know your impressions of teenagers and so on what's yeah. you know I saw you, Ringo, quoted to say something about this. What did I say? Um, oh, you tell me.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I, you know. I quoted so much into it. <laughs> 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 no,
13: what did I say? You, know? you tell him what he said, Paul. It's
14: about know.
13: adults. About adults. No, really, he's always quick. And older than I am. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, so he said the adults were a bigger problem than the teenagers. Oh yeah, well you know they sort of go potty. Yeah, <laughs> they were. They I were, mean well. the teenagers last for the autograph and take it, and leave with that, but the adults want to know where you've been. Well, what about them? Oh, too? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was an adult, but somebody did. <laughs> did you manage to get uh, much time
11: away from all this and really get away by yourself?
0: We got three days at the end after the Ed Sullivan <laughs> in Miami. You know, we stayed on. Was it three days? Yeah. It's something like that. Three days. Yes. You know, so was yes. like, yeah. nearly free just with the police and us, you know. <laughs> now, what about a final word about the Ed S- uh, Sullivan show? I mean, you went over a really big, uh, the biggest audience ever yeah. in, in New York. What was it like from your point of view? The,
13: the only thing we were a bit disappointed about was the sound. sound yeah. uh, you know, there was a bit of trouble with the sound. And mon- uh, My mic was off for one number and John's was very low for another, but... Um, I don't think it mattered. No, it at all? didn't matter an awful lot, we hope. You know, because the, re- the reception... Uh, Ed Southern Sullivan, New York. Uh, Ed Sullivan Harry. rang us up afterwards, you know, and he said, it's, it was lovely, fellas.
11: Thank you. Ed. In his own language, of course. Oh, of course, yes. Can you give us this impression that I've heard about of your
1: impression of the American language? Oh, I can't do it. Of
13: course, no, can. I can't. Go on, Green, John. John. <laughs> John.
1: No, I'll let John. W-I-S. No, we couldn't say that. <laughs>
13: Come on. on. No, we're not. No, we don't do impressions. We can't, yeah. when I can't. When we're out of the fifty,
15: we'll do impressions. I your impression of Ed Sullivan is better than Ed Sullivan. <coughs> he's a good lad, actually. Well, Mel. Well, he's good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyway, nice to see you back,
14: boys. It's good to Thanks see thank
15: you. Very you. Very you. Keeping, to you know.
1: Thanks very much for sparing the door to
15: it. Thanks very much. See you. Thank you very much. All the best. Good bye. Goodbye. Bye, Goodbye. Bye, Z. Keep, keep recording, BH. I'll go in with a hair mic and kill the main mic. Uh, George, yeah, yeah. yeah? let me ask you about the Liverpool accent. Do you think you've left some of it behind in the States?
16: Much, no, you, I mean. We have, you know, Well, we've all had it for 20-odd years, yes. so, I mean, you don't lose do it. You think? Bit. do you
15: think that any of the Americans have picked it up from you? Is it, is it going to become a fad, do you think?
16: No, but they've picked up a couple of things, you know, this fab gear and all that yes. sort of stuff. They, they start quoting in newspapers and things, and a lot of the kids, you know, the fans writing to us, I've noticed, you know, saying fab and gear, but... Yeah. I don't think, you know...
15: We Were amazed by the the, the the warmth of the reception?
16: Yeah, you know, it was just ridiculous, really. As uh, When we were uh, halfway over there, the, the captain, or the pilot, whatever you call him, he said to us that there were a couple of thousand kids there at mm. New York, and, you know, we uh, didn't really believe him. But when we arrived there, it was fantastic. You know, there's so many people, and uh, I think the... the Press. I've never seen so many press and T V cameras in one room all at once, you know.
15: You're glad to be home. Oh yeah. Good. Now let's move over to Ringo here. I haven't bothered
1: about so
15: many. Ringo, let me ask you about Cassius Clay. How'd you get on there with with that? Well I thought
1: he was a great fellow,
15: you know. Yeah. He's a big lad. So some people suggested that uh, it, it was a sort of dead heat between you and and Cassius on the publicity angle. In, in oh, he
1: beats anybody. You know, you've got to meet him to be, you know he's he's he, unbelievable he, the way he carries on. He like. really knocked you down. He keeps shouting and telling everyone how great he is and everything. You know, he's marvellous. <laughs>
15: Thanks very much. Now, a quick word with Paul. Paul,
1: did you get any chance while you were
15: ever there to do any more uh, writing? Um, I'm sorry, but sh- look, the police are getting
13: talking it. he's terrible that fella we we did write one or two yeah uh, half a one on the plane coming back and one or two sort of uh sitting around in the hotel in
15: miami do you think that the uh, american atmosphere helped you at all uh
13: it didn't actually no we no. expected it to uh but it, it didn't really because we didn't see enough news sort of things to be influenced it was all all the stuff we saw was the sort of stuff that we'd been um, listening to a few years ago. Did you feel a bit hurt by the
15: suggestion of some of the critics that what you were doing was old hat?
13: No, not really, because that's what we think. You know, we think it's a bit old hat. But a lot of other people don't think it is, so that was good enough. Well, it all depends on your personality. Thanks, Liam. I've got to wind it
10: up. Come on. on. Ringo,
13: was my coat?
0: Now, this Lost Shows campaign, uh, run by Charles Norton, which was very successful and can collect material from people like Adrian Bishop Lagger, who'd worked as a sound engineer at the BBC, also found some very unusual other items. This is the only surviving footage from the Roy Hudd show made by Yorkshire TV in 1969. <laughs>
16: Flushed with the success of their television detector vans, the government are thinking of extending the scheme to cover other types of offenders operating without licenses.
9: One lump or two, face?
17: <laughs> two, darling. Always. <laughs>
18: <gasps> Who can that be? Morning, squire. Good morning, and what can I do for you? All right, Fred, I've gained entry. Eva. Only I'm from the Licence Evaders Detector Bureau, Squire. And according to our information, you are operating an appliance in here without a license. Well, that's damned ridiculous. I've got a license for my radio, for my car, for my... Yes, no doubt, Squire, but the point is, have you got a license for that? For what? That! That's a duty, isn't it? Well,
14: yes it is,
18: but... And that's a wedding ring she's wearing on her finger, is it? Of course it well, is! Well then, why haven't you got a license for it? Seven and six at your local registry office, that's all they cost, mate. They're cheaper than dogs and they're far less trouble.
9: Now, just a minute!
18: Do you mind? I am talking to the operator, not the appliance.
14: <laughs> <laughs>
18: not bad. Not bad at all, Chiefy. I see you've got one of them portable models. Gives a reliable performance in any room in the house and not bad on picnics either. <laughs> <laughs> and why haven't you got a licence? Oh, well, I, um... And I... please, don't come that old one about it's only on hire so I didn't think I needed one. <laughs> well, no, Or I... that I... other <clears throat> hoary old chestnut. Hey, thought one licence in the house covered everybody. I wasn't going to say that. I should hope not, mate, because this is a 50-bedroom hotel and the other 49 have already trotted it out. <laughs> I don't know. You must think us Brighton blokes are simple, Mr. Smith. Get out of it. Now uh, look here, Mr. Um... Inspector. Now look here, Mr. Inspector. Yes, do I... look here. Do you mind, please, if your appliance, if I have any more interference from that appliance of yours, I shall have to fit her with a suppressor.
12: Oh, <laughs> oh don't worry, dearest. Leave this to me. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny you should come here this
19: morning. <laughs> <laughs> funny, is really funny. it? Was? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you see, as a matter of fact,
4: I was going to buy a license after breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> you were, were you? <laughs> yes.
18: <laughs> well, that's even funnier, because according to our information, you already hold a license for a similar appliance in Alpington to wit your missus. Oh,
9: Godfrey, you said you weren't. Oh, no,
18: no, no, I can yeah, explain. I yeah. that... You're also paying maintenance for a model in Pimlico to wit and Miss Sadie Atkins who sends her regards and says, wish you were here. This
9: <laughs> <laughs> It is true, Godfrey.
18: Well, as a matter of fact, it is dearest, <laughs> but I can explain.
9: I, I... don't want to hear, and I never want to see you again.
18: <laughs> There's a fine mess you've got me into. Oh, I'm sorry, Ollie, but the law's the law. And if we break it, we have to pay the consequences, don't we? Uh, excuse me, the van. <coughs> Hill, Stevens here, here what? Uh I break your God stone me! Now what? The rotten stinking GPO have just come round and nicked me for not having a television licence. God.
0: <laughs> and here's a clip that's even rarer than rocking horse manure. This is from uh, BBC Radio London News The Rush uh, Hour. a date unknown but since they've recorded none of output whatsoever, there's a pretty good chance it's missing. So, 8.31 on Russia, and it's time for the London News, read for you by Paul Ingram.
17: The President of the French Mine Workers Union, Monsieur Léon Delfos, is meeting British Mine Workers leader, Mr Joe Gormley, in London today. This follows a meeting with Kent miners in Dover yesterday, when Monsieur Delfos promised that no French coal would cross the channel during the strike. He said his men were 100% behind British colleagues and they had the wholehearted cooperation of French dockers and seamen in blacking British coal deliveries. Monsieur Delphos also promised financial help for the Kent miners' strike fund and said that on election day a contingent of his men would visit pickets in Britain to show their solidarity. Leaders of the three rail unions will be meeting the British Rail Board in London this afternoon to hear the Board's reply to their demands for a new pay deal from May the 1st. It's expected the Board will offer the union's rises of up to 10%, with a promise to put the railmen's case for extra money to the pay Board inquiry into wage relativities. Over a million copies of the Daily Mirror were lost last night, when journalists in London stopped work to hold a five-hour union meeting. A spokesman for the management confirmed that newsmen at the paper's Manchester and Glasgow offices had not returned to work after their decision to call a stoppage. Two million copies of the paper's northern editions were lost. At the moment, no meetings are planned between the journalists and management. An Irish civil rights movement has warned that there could be a flare-up of violence in Britain if there's a continuation of what they regard as unwarranted police harassment of Irish families. The London-based Irish Civil Rights Association accused police officers of using flimsy excuses for raiding the homes of Irish families. The association said many Irish people had complained to their MPs about harassment and their complaints were passed on to the Home Office from where they were passed back to the police and then forgotten. Thousands of leaflets have been printed in 11 languages by the Dover Harbour Board to draw the attention of drivers of juggernaut lorries to the dangers of the A2 road between Dover and London. The leaflets say that the road network hasn't kept pace with the incredible expansion of trade through the south-east ports brought about by improved technology. Drivers are asked to use care and obey speed restrictions. They're warned that the suction produced by a large lorry travelling at speeds over 30 miles an hour could draw a small child into the road. The A2 Action Group has welcomed publication of the leaflets. After being discharged from a hospital in North London, a woman of 97 was found lying alone and helpless in the bathroom of her home. And now health officials have issued a statement saying every step must be taken to prevent such an incident recurring. The woman has been readmitted to the hospital St Anne's after representations from Haringey's Social Services Department. A man and a woman are recovering in hospital today after jumping for their lives as fire swept through their South London home. The couple were stranded on the first floor of their house in Brine Road, Ballam, by the blaze last night. As firemen arrived, they jumped. The owner of the house, Mr Cantilal Shah, was taken to St Mary's Hospital Croydon for treatment to serious burns and bruising caused by the jump. Plans to build a civic administration centre costing millions of pounds at Church End in Finchley have been postponed by Barnet Borough Council. They say they've had to shelve the project because of the present economic situation. A small coloured box fixed to prams may be the answer to the problem of baby snatching. Two men from Stevenage and Hertfordshire have designed a gadget which they claim will foil attempts to interfere with a baby or its pram. It's an alarm which will cost about £6.75, but it's the invention of a vintage car renovator, Roger Steer, and an electronics engineer, Alan Toombs. They're expected, expecting to market the device soon. The dispute at Thames Television goes on today and threatens to black out all live programmes. The dispute's over the sacking of 12 powderpuff girls who refused to work with four trainees in their department. The makeup girls were then
0: sacked by Thames, but 200 workers struck in sympathy. And Lightways. Even rarer than the rocking horse manure comes wooden rocking horse manure. This is from Capital Radio in the morning, also, for an unspecified transmission date. Perhaps you might know when they are, and you can tell us, because I don't know. But here they are from this Lost Shows campaign.
11: Every morning at the Tom Vance and Joan Shenton program on Capital 539. Bow, and today, Monty, on page three, where is it? Yes, today, Monty at large. Monty will be at Hatton Garden taking a look at what is known as a girl's best friend. Oh, not down there. Oh, diamonds, diamonds. Monty and diamonds, can you imagine that? That's going to be a ball. Stay tuned to Capital 539 because we have a double helping of David Bowie coming up right after this. Everybody loves Streisand and Redford together, in the way we were. Don't take our word
3: for it. It's
20: fantastic. Really great. Sad. Sad? <laughs> yeah. If you could talk about the film in one word, what would you say? Truthful, really, wouldn't it? Very much not, the you know, nice. What did you think about Streisand? It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And Redford. Oh, lovely.
3: Certificate A, Leicester Square Theatre, now.
2: Wrigley Spearmint. The
9: big fresh flavor.
2: Wrigley Spearmint gum.
18: Carry it with
2: you. Wrigley Spearmint gum. The
14: big
18: fresh flavor. Wrigley Spearmint. Carry the big fresh flavor. Wherever you go. Whatever you do. Wrigley Spearmint. That's the finest pack of
14: flavor. Hey,
11: wherever you go. Carry a pack of Wrigley Spearmint gum. Cause flavor as big as Wrigley Spearmint shouldn't be left behind.
17: The big Come fresh flavor.
11: The Daily Express, first with the action and first again this morning. With General Diane's decision not to serve in the new Israeli government, The Express takes a look at this astonishing man through the eyes of a woman who was married to him for a generation. Jean Gene Rock meets Harold Wilson and the Harris Poll reveals an interesting new election feature. The Daily Express, first with the action. Get your copy of The Daily Express now. OK, A and B side time puppies at 23 minutes before 9 o'clock in the morning. This is the Bowie and Rebel Rebel along with Queen Bitch. You stay tuned for all the hits on 539.
0: We're now delving into the archive of, of uh, Dennis Goodwood And this is called confined a cap this is the bbc midlands home service from 1956 from raf wellsbourne near mountford which is in warwickshire in fact uh, i got married near wellsbourne actually funnily enough the 21st of august 1956 this is dennis goodwin doing stand-up and being as it's bbc midlands and we know it doesn't exist anymore and we know that probably it wasn't heard nationally either
19: and now ladies and gentlemen we have a special surprise for you You've all seen those wonderful films, Up in Arms, Hans Christian Andersen, and more recently, The Court Jester. Now I have great pleasure in introducing to you a man who has also seen
21: these films. (laughs) Dennis Goodwin. Thank you so much, and I must say, ladies and gentlemen, you certainly look good from up here, particularly the NCOs, just like a rainbow, a shower with stripes. (laughs) Think the, uh, I think the airmen look wonderful, too. Every, every man living up to the immortal motto of the RAF, Saint to vous, Jacques, je suis all right. <laughs> Which roughly translated means, when standing to attention in a medical inspection, keep your thumbs in line with your varicose veins.
9: <laughs>
21: oh, those medical inspections. You know, I remember mine, I still remember mine. The, the MO said to me, he said, what's your profession? I said, comedian. He said, well, make me laugh. So I took my clothes off and they carried them out. But... <laughs> you know something our our sick bay was full of doctors there there was Dr. Chester chest surgery Dr. Head head specialist Dr. Foot chiropodist and Dr. Winterbottom general practitioner (laughs) then there was my first inoculation parade Isn't that awful, that inoculation parade? You don't know where to put your hands, do you? No pockets. Now, honestly, (laughs) I was turning blue with the cold. Finally, one fellow came up and jabbed me in the arm. I said, are you from the MO? He said, no, from the orderly room. I'm filling my fountain pen. (laughs) I learned one thing from those medical parades. You can always tell a man's rank by the hair on his chest. That's absolutely true. If he's got the average fuzz, he's an AC2. If he's got a big, bushy chest full of hair, he's a drill sergeant. If it's up in curlers, he's a flight lieutenant. But um, <laughs> thank you, newcomers. But I was stationed, I was stationed at Padgate for most of my service. Oh, it's a wonderful place, Padgate, Dartmoor with Blanco. I think it's wonderful. Oh, <laughs> uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> I remember it was dead cold up there in the winter time. You know they had three kinds of weather in Padgate: cold, very cold, and don't fall out of bed, Jack. You'll break your pyjamas. <laughs> We, we uh, All of us, we had to help out on the neighbouring farms, you know, in the district. I had to milk a cow once. It was so cold. All that came out was five yards of spaghetti. <laughs> you know what a cow is, of course. It's an animal with four stander-uppers, two sticker-outers, five hanger-downers, and a swisher. <laughs> One cow was there for three months, but she never gave any milk, so we finally had to sell him. Then, <laughs> then there was Wing Commander Admin Jenner's. He was... Um, he was a friend of my family, you know. Well, he seemed to know all about my parents. <laughs> Be Careful, we're visiting the officer's mess after the show. Of course, my, my family's always been associated with the forces, you know. There was my grandfather, Bicarbonate Goodwin. He was one of the early settlers. And... Uh, <laughs> He was a general and in the 1914-18 war he saved over 5,000 of his troops by a brilliant stroke of strategy. He surrendered in 1912. (laughs) No, he was an amazing man, ladies and gentlemen, he lived on a diet of nothing but little liver pills all his life, nothing but little liver pills. (laughs) He died at 107 and four days later we had to beat his liver to death with a stick. next time I do it I'll say it properly oh but memories memories I, I remember the time all the boys got me to ask our sergeant about giving us 48 hours I'll never forget it if I live to be normal <laughs> I just strolled up casually I said Sarge Buster daddy the weekend passes he said I oh, know and when it does you'll still be here <laughs> And they posted a hundred rats, uh, rats. They are now. They posted a hundred rats to the camp, and I walked straight into the adjutant's office. I, I said, "Can I be put on my charge now?" The adjutant said, "But you haven't done anything wrong." I said, "Not yet. I want to get the nasty part over first. <laughs> but I must say, this is a wonderful camp, ladies and gentlemen. I must say it. There's an SP in the wings with a rifle and um, they've certainly they're, they're a very hungry lot in the maintenance command no, not at all particular about the way they serve the food the way it works the, the fellow <laughs> Do you mind I was just explaining to the listeners about the way they serve the food the fellow at the head of the table sticks the food in front of an aircraft propeller and they all inhale the gravy as it flies by <laughs> And the place has been specially spruced up today with an ex-RAF vacuum cleaner. When it was well-oiled, it whistled and picked up every bit of fluff inside. (laughs) Now, honestly, this is is such a big camp, ladies and gentlemen, you can't get away from it. Not when the service police are watching. In fact, (laughs) this camp is so large, by the time you get to the married quarters, you forget you're married. But but I think the the rafts are wonderful. I mean, imagine 7,000 women all wearing the same dress and no fights. Isn't that marvellous? Isn't that horrible? And they're so kind, they're so kind to of men too. I saw an RAF truck at the side of the tarmac on the way. They thought they'd had a puncture. So I leaned in the back. I said, "Tired down. The boy said, no, I didn't have to. And the men are wonderful.
14: <laughs>
21: <laughs> but really, really the, the men are wonderful too. There was one corporal on the camp with a VC. He got it for eating in the mess with his eyes open. I think that's marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> but you know something, all this takes me back to my days in the mob Mind you, as I, as I told them, I, I should have been exempt from the RAF service On religious grounds, because I'm a devout coward And <laughs> I'll never forget the day I joined They wanted to make me a pilot officer, they said I was too young to be an airman <laughs> But my, uh, my very first morning in the mob, I got 28 days for saluting the group captain. It wasn't my fault, I had cramp in the other fingers, but
14: I remember.
0: Now I think it's fair to say that Dennis Goodwin had the perfect face for radio. He was brilliant at voices and a brilliant writer, but he wasn't as good at being in front of the screen. The other man, of course, was almost the complete opposite. He flourished on television, and this is Benny Hill being interviewed for the BBC on the 27th of November, 1963.
10: (laughs) Ah! Everything. Oh yes. Um, well, I'm just to know all of all Ask me. Ask me. What's the nicest city to go to then? What's the nicest city to go to? For a gentleman, I would say Tokyo. Not for a lady, because Tokyo is designed for gentlemen and men
14: <laughs>
10: and layabouts like me. It's awfully nice there. There's um, all sorts of little interesting things. It's the bath houses, which are very nice. You you have a private bath, you know, and um, you have your back scrubbed by a rather attractive Japanese lady, you know, which is very nice, you know, when they beat football, the way Arsenal play. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, you you go into this um, bathhouse, you know, and um, the madame, not the madame, the lady who runs the place says, uh, who would you like to bath you, you know, and they're all sort of sitting there and smiling, you know. And you say, "Well, I'm not the one on the end, don't you know, cheerful little lady. You know, got a sense of humour. <coughs> so um, she says, "You know, I'm quite a pleasure. Come up you. you takes you by the hand into the into the bath room. You know, which is a large room, and there's um, you have a steam bath first. You know, she sits there and knits or reads a book or sings or something. You know, and then she takes you out of the steam bath and um, gives you a jolly good old scrub and a and a, and a soap. You know." and then ducks you in a cold bath, which is very invigorating. And then gives you a massage and it's all, and, and sometimes, you know, um, they run over you with their feet. Well, they couldn't run over you or anything else, couldn't they? But you lie on your stomach, you know, and, that, and they run up and down your back with, the, with, the, with their toes sticking in it, and gets all the, all the, you know, cracks out your back. And I go, you know, i have been there once or twice, three or four times. And I, you know, they used to say to me sometimes, you know, so said, what, what do you want to come have another bath? And they go, hey, you a queen boy, you just to have a bath. You not want to have another one, because I used to come out of one and go straight into the one down the road, you know. <laughs> well, it's such a novelty, isn't it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the pumpkin was funny. story historian, man. Right. right. Um. <coughs>
11: Pardon? About the middle, these which I said, in fact, didn't go anywhere. Um, we talked about generally about
10: travel did you want to go away from that I don't mind and um, you said you were a bit of a layabout? yes I don't I don't work very hard if I can avoid it I work slow and easy you know we well, see I'm not married and I don't have a car and I don't spend a lot of money apart from on travel you know so I don't need a lot of money so I don't work very hard you know if I can avoid it and I usually, it's not bad, it's not bad, is it? Although I've got a mate of mine, he uh, wrote to me, an American fella. And um, I met him a couple of years ago in, in Barcelona. And he has a swing in life. Because he's got a very limited, a limited income, you know, small income from some business he's got, you know. Not very much. But he just travels around the world doing nothing. <laughs> and um, he's just written to me from Paraguay, you know. And um, he says for about four pounds a week, you can, you can you can live over there and have a have a, a swing in time, you know. So I might go and join them before long. You never know. It's good though, actually, because um, you don't think it work work in, it in the end, is it? Oh no, no, mine is. <laughs> Why haven't you got a car? Why haven't I got a car? I was a, oh that's a good question. There's a good line. I was a driver in the army for five years. I was a driver mechanic in the Remy. And I've driven everything from, you know, big Scammels and big leylands down to jeeps and motorbikes, you know. And um, I've nearly been killed. and nearly killed so many people so often that I thought, well, I think now's the time. When I come at the hour, I said to myself, well, now's the time to, to pack it all up. Oh, well, yes. not got a wife. Well, I haven't got a wife. It's funny you should say that. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I asked the girl to marry me about, about ten years ago. And she turned me down and married a dentist. I haven't asked anybody since, you know. And why I, you turn down? Well, I don't know. I suppose she didn't like me and I couldn't do her teeth for nothing, could I for a start? Then <laughs> you haven't thought of it. Oh, I think about it all the time, yes. But um, I never think of anything else. <laughs> but um, I don't know. No, I nearly did. Now, now I must say this. This is um, twice I nearly asked. Might have been turned down again, you don't know. But twice since then, I've nearly asked. Both times, at the old flat where I used to live, where it had a roof just above my, um, the flat that I had, the roof, and both times, it was on the roof, and both times, they were redheads. They all know, won't they? And both times, it was Easter time, and both times, they had on these sort of flowery pattern dresses that they wear, and that, and the spring, and the daffodils, you know you get a touch of the tapioca then, don't you? You have to be very careful, you know. But, but I nearly, I was on the edge of it, and I don't know, I just twisted the subject around, you know, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll wait a bit longer and see, because I'm a bit too young to die, aren't I, you know? So you wouldn't live a track if you, that, so well, or would you? I, that, yeah, that is one of the things, you know, you think, well, you can't, I mean, now, no, seriously, now, you know, sometimes the life is a little bit lonely, you know, on your own without, without a wife, but on the other hand, now I can do what, what I frequently do, I ring up the I live just around the corner from the airport terminal and I get on the phone and I say when's the next plane to Europe? And the girl says, Where? And I say, Who cares? <laughs> when, you know. And she says there's a Lufthansa to Hamburg in two hours' time or something, and I say, Well, book me on it, and I put a toothbrush in a, an and a and a razor and pair of pajamas, if the weather's cold, in a briefcase and nip round the corner and, and I'm on it.
11: A woman would stop this.
10: Yeah, bestimmt, I'm sure she would, you know.
0: (laughs) Our final item from the Bob Monkhouse archive is from uh, a test recording, a non-transmitted test recording that was probably for the advertising agency that Bob Monkhouse and Malcolm Mitchell used to run. This is Cadbury's Skippy's First Date. I assume Cadbury's refers to the confectionery company. And this is Shane Fenton, Wendy Richard and Tommy Steele
3: we would like to play you some recent tracks produced by Mitchell Monk House Associate. Each Sunday, we package a 30-minute Radio Luxembourg programme for Cadbury's Skippy. The following is an example of one of the commercials. Time to
13: meet Jimmy Gabble and the Late, Late, Late Show.
19: And this is your old chum, Jimmy Gabble, once again. And tonight, here at my pre-recorded party, we're going to give a fast hello and an even faster goodbye to the latest smash star whose latest waxing is already 345 on the waiting list for the top thousand. The 13-year-old leader of that fabulous Liverpool group known as the Beatle Brothers or the Tremolo Sisters. Uh, We can't tell which because of their haircuts. So, let's say, how do you do to rock bottom? How do you do, rock? How do you do? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I think you're absolutely wonderful.
6: I think you're wonderful too.
19: Well, thanks. And do you mind if I ask you and your boys a few questions?
9: If there's anything that you want, if there's anything I can
19: do. Marvellous. Well, tell us, Rock, what exactly were you doing when you were first discovered?
6: There are was. Digging his home, all in the ground So big and sort around it
19: was Really? Well, that I'd love to see It's not there now Oh, pity. Anyway, Rock, I understand that you and the boys have just completed a film What's it like? What a picture, what
6: a picture i bum um, bum 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 bum
19: And uh, what did the critics say about it?
6: Stick it in your family, Album!
19: Oh, pity. Tell me, Rock, uh, what sort of an outfit do you wear on the stage?
9: Oh, white, spot coat
19: Very smart. And of course, all your fans would love to know, what do you wear uh, when you're all alone in the privacy of your own home?
9: Baubles, bangles, bright shiny bees.
19: Yes. Well, I-, I see that you've just got married. Uh, Rock, how do you feel about your wife?
6: I'm very grateful she's a woman.
19: Well, naturally, yes. And I also read that your manager went with you on your honeymoon. Um, how did that work out?
18: Right, said great both of us
19: together Really? Well, they say you make £3,000 a week, Rock but after you've paid for instruments and orchestrations and hotel accommodation and transport and managers' fees and agents' commission and all that exactly how much do you have left? Ah,
5: for
19: six Well, eh, sure showbiz And finally, I'd like to ask you and your fab group what's your prophecy for the biggest hit with the public in
5: 1963? Get
6: skippy, go happy with kepper is much more munchy bar
19: Uh, No, no boys, actually I meant, um, what's the new sensation that all the kids are going to go out of their schools to get? Skippy,
22: Skippy, Skippy, Skippy,
19: Skippy Yes, but, I mean, rock, I mean Skippy, I mean, uh, that's that's a chocolate bar, isn't it? I mean, you can't sing a song about a chocolate bar, can you? Or can you? Get
4: Skippy, go happy, Cadbury's much more munchy bar
19: well, you've certainly sold me on Skippy, lads. I'll, I'll just uh, slip a Skippy bar onto the turntable and I'll, I'll lower the needle onto it and see what it says. There. Yeah, that's funny. It's, uh, it doesn't make a sound. It doesn't have to. The taste says everything
17: for Skippy. That's because it's a perfect combination. Crisp biscuit, creamy caramel, and Cadbury's famous milk chocolate. Three big thrills in one big bar. Try one tomorrow yourself and find out. At tea break... Lunch break, coffee time, tea time. Any time's the right time for Skippy. Yes, have
19: a Munchy Skippy and you'll say... I like
9: it, I like it.
19: Get Skippy, go happy.
6: Get Skippy, go happy with Cadbury's Much More Munchy Bar. Get Skippy, go happy. There's three big thrills in one big bar. Caramel, crispy biscuit and Cadbury's Milk Chocolate. All in Skippy. Get
9: skippy, go happy.
3: That commercial was devised
11: and read by Bob Monkhouse with Doug Stanley. The jingles were composed and orchestrated
0: by Malcolm Mitchell. Staying with the music theme for a moment, this is a lost Top the Pops. From April the 22nd, 1971, we're going to hear a bit of the Rolling Stones and I'm kind of hoping that somebody here might actually tell me if these are uh, new lyrics. It would be lovely to think that uh, in those days, of course, they were actually changing the lyrics and they appeared live on these shows. The 20th item is from a Callan episode. Once a big man, always a big man. A brilliant series, Callan. I absolutely adore this with Edward Woodward and Russell Hunter as Lonely. This is from 1969. To be more precise, 19th of March, 1969. you can hear the whole audio of this on the ViaVision Callan box set, which is out in Australia because we put it on the box set last year. But this is Edward Woodward as David Callan. And also you're going to hear Probably at some point, Jacqueline Pierce as Eva, better learn as Servalan, of course, in uh, Blake Seven, in a very early role for her as well. Here they are, Callan. <laughs> <laughs> all right,
14: all right.
12: In the cabin. How are you doing there? In the cabin, you better come quick. Somebody's been shot.
20: I said no, Clyde. We've got to get back safe first. It must be in the village somewhere. Call it up till the morning. Oh, come now, Clyde. Don't pretend you don't know what I'm talking about. Billy? Yes. Listen, you're in this up to your little Nazi neck, so I don't think you can creep out of it.
7: You'll have to tell someone, Miss. sooner or later. Later.
20: I would act you to tell thing. No one need fight each the more. Yes, what would I do to say with... that Clyde?: drink, Shriek, miss? At a time like this.
10: I think you're wrong, miss. You should tell the
7: police. Now,
20: when I am ready, I want you to go down to the harbor, find out of the faced man. He does not go to the park. Uh, don't
12: be
6: ridiculous, fool, but as I? I tell you. No, Miss Eve, I will not. Your
12: father was, was a fool. He was a good man. He was
20: an old man and he was finished.
12: He still had a lot of dignity.
20: Dignity? Where? He hasn't had dignity for years. He was frightened. Frankly, that a thousand punitive investors would take their money out of his pocket. Call that dignity. It wouldn't have been so bad if he'd done it for the cause or something. If it had been some grand political gesture.
7: He hasn't deprived you, Miss, over all these years, if I may say so.
20: And he's not going to now. Not now, Cly. And that's why you're going to help me. Because you won't want your meek light messed up either, will you?
11: Wait. The lights are on, Miss. I mustn't.
22: Well, it's all right. I
20: know the door, way. <coughs> what happened? My father, Mr. Callum, had shot himself. Not that that's anything to do with you. Are you called, please? Call. Unfortunately, the nearest the ten miles away. It takes them some time to get here. Have you touched anything? Very aggressive hey, is the word I think you're looking for, Miss Yes. I sometimes get by there. Have you touched anything? No, I have not. Did any kind of know of any reason why? Has it really got anything to do with you? I mean, I appreciate your help, Mr. Coward, but I think you should leave this to me. After all, it is my problem.
12: Yeah, it certainly is.
20: Who do you think you are, anyway?
12: Well, I so say, I'm just trying to help you.
20: What are you doing here? You've got no right to I'm trying to help you, Miss. Yes. Well, I'm rather cold. I think I'll go and change you for something warmer. Yeah, go
14: on.
0: Now, the interesting thing about Callan there is that that was on a reel transferred by Neil from a house clearance tape from Stephen Monk. Now, since the tape was completely unlabeled and had no writing on any kind of you know inner or outer, Neil had no idea at all what was on there until we actually transferred it, which just goes to show that it's always worth persevering until the very end, I think it is. <laughs> OK, this is from the third programme, 30th of April 1961. Cliff Richard and Norrie Powermore explaining Making a Pop Record. One of the
7: busiest people in the control room was David Lloyd. He operated the tape machine, and he had to log the tape indicator readings for each take and play back any one of these on demand. I asked him a bit more about his job. Well, I'm the junior engineer. Uh, my main job is to make sure the machines are in worker order before the sessions start and they're loaded with tape before the start. I notice here you're using more than one recording machine. Why is that? Well, tonight we've got a stereo session uh, with a mono tap. That is to say, we run a stereo machine at the same time we run a mono machine, which is a direct copy from the stereo. I see. So every time you stop to start again, both machines must be started together. Yes, they're linked, actually. So when I start by it, it automatically starts other. I see. Uh, But there's more than two machines here, surely. Well, uh, just in case, we have um, two lots of stereo running and two lots of mono running, which in past times we have, and we've got machines in the room ready. Uh, are you likely to do it in the editing? Uh, not myself, no. The editing is done by a separate start. Even if it was a straightforward thing to be doing? Well, if it was, in, if it was a rush job, then we do it on the session. But normally the thing is taken through, and that complete tape goes off for four seconds. Oh yes, it's taken away after the session and goes to a separate During one of the recordings, I made a sketch of all the microphones that were being used. In the centre were the five saxophones split on either side of a ribbon microphone. Then, at right angles to this, that's to say, facing the saxophone microphone's dead side, there were five trombones in a row playing into a cardioid condenser microphone with four trumpets up on a rostrum behind them. On the saxophone's other flank, there was an arc of rhythm players, namely the vibraphone, timpani, and the Latin American instrument. Three ribbon microphones for that part. The piano used a ribbon microphone too, and so did the remaining rhythm instrument, double bass, guitar, and drum. One microphone apiece. The vocal microphone was a condenser cardioid, and it was enclosed in a tent of screamed as we heard earlier. It was near the rhythm, for strict timing, and it was close to the conductor too though I noticed that Cliff Richard's manager sometimes acted as a link with the conductor in tricky passages like this
1: lover please be tender while your tender is depart lover please surrender to my heart I say the devil is in you and to you, try.
7: When the final number had been recorded, I asked Nori Paramore and Cliff Richard if all the discs had been planned and worked on in this way. Well, um, it's been different because we've never used a big band before, and um, I must say it's been interesting. So it would be great fun to have a disc when we got here though. Yes, Norrie, what led up to using the big band? Well, uh, I think that we've uh, tried to uh, experiment a little with Cliff recently. Right we used strings quite successfully, and as a matter of fact, Tito, uh, Tito Burns, he suggested that we should use a big band. So this is the result. I think it's not too The first few bars I had when we came, he uh, told me it was going to be something unusual. Um, what kind of preparations followed that? Do you thought it would be a good idea? Yeah. And then what happened? Well, we um, we got together with. Uh, Bernard Ebbinghaus who did the arrangements were all rather staggered at how brilliant they've turned out. Were so, you in on this clip, at that stage? Well, um, yes, right at the beginning. First of all, we chose the numbers that we thought would be most suitable. And then we asked Bernard to come in. And we were in Nora's office, and we were going to on the piano and gave our ideas to Bill and Bernie did most. So Was this weeks ago, or a few days ago? I don't know. Ooh. Three weeks? Three or four week. weeks ago? Uh,
0: and from BRMB Radio, from the Ed Doolan collection, transferred by Pete Crowther, we have Bill Maynard in April 1977 talking about for forget. You know, it won't surprise me if it all f- falls away
12: next week. You know, mm. things are like that. Who knows? Within within two months, within six months, people people forget very very quickly. So what you've got to do. This is one of the reasons I made the record. This is one of the reasons why I'm now delighted to be working in a wheelchair because who knows. Like, next year, it might be my wheelchair year, so I've got to prepare for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right, you're right. You've got to be ready because all of a sudden you finish a television series, and if you've been doing that television series for, say, five, ten years, and only that one character, nobody, you'll find that nobody will employ you because this is what I found in the past when I used to do the sweaters and the haircut in Great Scottish Maynard, it was 20 years before I was accepted as anything else. What have you got coming up after Sylvan Froggen? As uh, soon as Solwyn finishes, I've got a, a series for Thames, which is networked, of course, which is called Paradise Island. Uh, the reason I, I took this one so near, I didn't really want another comedy series quite so quickly. I would have liked a couple of dramas, which would have, been, which would have balanced it outright, yeah. would have made a nice bridge. Um, but this came up, and one of the characters, there's only two characters, they offered me the... One character, which was a, a ship 's officer, it 's about two guys who go down on a ship and they spend their life on a desert island, and it 's all their bickerings and associations and there's one of the guys is, is as I say, is, a, is an entertainments officer, a bit flash, misses all the birds and the booze and all of that. The other character is a, a vicar type priest type yeah. monk who's on the trip because he, he won a spot the archbishop contest <laughs> in the Church Times. Would you believe? <laughs> anyway, so you've got these two. So they offered me this. And I said, no, I won't do that. What I'll do is, because that was too near the Life of Riley character, yeah. you know, the Flash. Yeah. I said, what I'll do, I'll tell you what I'll do. Although it's the feed part, it was basically the straight part. I said, what I will do is, I will play the vicar-priest fellow, you see. Yeah. And of course, because I played him, he became a, he became a bit monkish and became a bit eccentric and in fact, it, it worked out very well. So although he doesn't have funny lines to say, he is an eccentric character. Who's uh, the other guy? Uh, William, uh, Bill Franklin, the, the Schweppes oh, commercial super, guy. Super, You see? But Bill was, I think, destined to play the vicar yeah. because, you know, he He's ter- terribly like yeah. that. So what's actually ha- had to happen is he's become the Flash, yeah. you know, sort of bird wanting booze wanting type and i'm i've become the well, there are higher things my son and it's worked out well uh, because we're playing against type in many ways uh-huh. it it seems to work like
0: a dream uh-huh. I haven't seen them yet tell you after wasn't that clip magic out, huh, morris now are you thinking what i'm thinking was that really bill maynard or was that alfred hitchcock i don't know can anyone look inside the computer and tell me Moving swiftly onward, we have three experts here. I mean, I'm moving very swiftly onward with my terrible jokes. This is Michael Chapman, Peter Kageen and Michael Simpson at a kaleidoscope event in March 2005. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Michael Simpson's wife came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, that it was incredibly uh, rare to get Michael Chapman to be anything but grumpy, basically. Michael Chapman hated being interviewed. But she said, you really managed to get Michael to open up and give probably the best interview he's ever done, ever. So I take that as quite a compliment. Now, Mark Shutterworth recorded this, who was our, our main person, with Kate Shutterworth uh, uh, as our main sound engineer. And so, and we have them to thank for this recording. We're going to, hear, going to hear three clips here. We're going to hear one from Michael Chapman talking about Public Eye, the wonderful series with Alfred Burke that he both produced and story edited at various times and wrote, in fact. And we're going to hear all three of them talking about a famous Bill scene in a van. Now, I showed this clip and hopefully you're going to hear some of the audio from that as well as part of these sequences. And I thought this was just a convenient clip to show because we didn't have many clips on VHS tape. It turned out this scene was a really interesting example of the three men working together and they waffled on about this scene for quite a while. So here's their conversation after they've watched this particular clip are some actors from the bill sitting in a police van.
12: What the hell are they doing?
6: They're using the hostages as cover. That's what they're bloody well doing.
9: Get one of these kids over here. Oh. Stay there, do that go, come in, come.
23: come on, come on, come on, come Go, go, go. What's the it won't it won't recognize on, come on, come on, come on, come on, well on, come on, recognise it? come <laughs> um, you talking about where we lent on because of violence. That episode was
5: This is the, the last the, was
14: was the, the, band. the band, well, last yeah. one
23: you yeah. did. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the first one that I completed. what happened was that who's that fan actor that died a dream?
16: Oh Kevin um, Lloyd. Pe-
23: Kevin Lloyd. His family were Kidnapped in a bank yes. by some roughs, bank raiders, and there was a scene in the bank of considerable violence, and it involved um, Kevin Lloyd's characters, small kids, and his wife, exactly. and, and he, he was shot. And the um, the storyline was read by <clears throat> the IT. C, whatever they call themselves noted that's the, yeah, the with Puma authority. And they were concerned by what they read, and when they saw it, they were even more concerned, because this was now before the watershed, and what concerned them was the effects on kids uh, of this violence. Obviously none of them would be mothers or fathers. So it was the way with regulators, and however they put their foot down, they wouldn't have it. So we were stuck with a significant chunk of, uh, of action that we couldn't possibly use. All that business of the car, which wouldn't start, was actually made after the, prog- the programme had been made, after the episode had been made, some several days later, as a device to get over the action that we weren't permitted to see inside the bank. Um, they had rigged a car, the, the police had rigged a car, so that it wouldn't start. So that was, it worked perfectly well. But that's, that's a typical example of the problems you have when you move from after nine o'clock to before nine o'clock.
5: And overall, we you know, the show itself. Well, one forgets the climate in which one's working. I went on a colloquium in Dijon once, uh, which was about police drama in Europe. And we were all invited to show clips. And I showed some stuff which was strong, not that particular program. And the other program makers were astonished and said, and this was moderate fare I was showing. It showed police in crisis. And they said, we couldn't show this. And I said, why not? He said, it's, it's not the detail, it's the tone. He says, it's too dark
21: mm. for yeah.
5: us. It's too, you know, um, it has no, no escape from reality in it at all. You're just facing the harshness of a policeman's life when confronted. And they found that they, they admired it and envied us for being able to show it.
0: Did you find it hard picking up Pop the Guy Because that had been a man for years for you. You no I
23: didn't. Um,
0: <clears throat>
23: part of the necessary requirements um, of a producer is a well-developed ego um, <laughs> and you work on what you want to work on and you push programs the way you want them to go uh, and you are employed. Um, mm-hmm because your past history suggests that you're doing it the right way. So I've always been interested in um, in putting my imprint on a program. Elfie uh, Burke, uh, a, a wonderful actor and a, uh, a highly intelligent um, and engaging man, uh, saw what I was trying to do um public eye by that time. It started out as a as a very austere program. It was quite bleak in its in its origins. <clears throat> Brian Tesla, the program controller who um, um who gave me my first job, when that he saw that first episode of Public Eye, I remember him saying, it seems to me um very little fun. I'm a bit concerned about its um, wider appeal. Um, he was to some extent right. It, it remained, I think, of limited appeal whilst being a very respectable programme. Um, I took it on when it was in Birmingham and it still had quite a gritty feel about it, um, which was which was good um, at the time when grit wasn't the general dramatic currency. But nevertheless, one could see that it needed warming up a bit.
0: We're nearly at the end of our clips, and in fact probably well into an hour by now, even though I've only been talking for about 15 minutes. This is Waggoner's Walk from the 27th of April 1979, a very rare, and missing episode.
7: Well, I don't have
20: the free Yeah, no, thanks, Donald. Don't mention it. Give be a call if there's anything else I can do. Oh, isn't it lovely? I do like people. See that? doesn't share all this excitement? He's really glowy. Yeah,
7: not just the street party, then, Is it, Mum?
20: What do you mean, Sheriff? Well, I haven't seen you with stars in your eyes for a long time, have I? Is it, uh, is it Donald? Is it? Donald? <laughs> <laughs> don't be Sydney <so> silly, dear.
6: <laughs> oh. This is too ridiculous. It must be here somewhere. You're going to be late for the bank at this rate, my dear chap. I can't help that, Arthur. I've got to find it.
18: If you told me what it was you were looking for, I might
6: be able to help. I very much doubt it. Look at you now, turning drawers upside down, throwing things about.
7: I'm quite worried about your jaw. I am simply looking for Mother's engagement ring. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I was under the impression you gave it to
6: Mrs. Miller for that other engagement of yours. I did. She returned it. Oh. And now I need it again. What for, Jules? Ah! Thank heavens,
7: Marie. Yes, I was beginning to think I must be going mad. Where well, was it? In the toe of
0: one of my bed socks. You were beginning to think you were mad.
11: I am going to be safe there.
0: Now, Radio 4 Extra, of course, over the years, have actually played quite a few of these the series take it from here a very funny comedy series from the kind of 50s and uh, late 40s i think starring dick bentley and jimmy edwards but here's something you probably haven't heard though though we have returned this back to the bbc to broadcast at some point this is a preview for the series in 1951 made a bit like today's like adverts i suppose starring joy nichols dick bentley and jimmy edwards and this has not been heard since 1951 well we'll play it complete for you
6: Oh. Well, then let's start thinking of what we're going to do in the new rodeo program. Mm. You know, this time we've got to think of something that no other show is doing, something really different.
0: Well, look, this is just
15: a suggestion. Uh, how about we start the show this time with just me on my own telling some gags? Just for as long as it'll hold, about 20 minutes. Uh, I'll tell all the gags that have got me the big laughs in Blackpool.
5: Mm, what are you going to do with the other 19 minutes?
19: <laughs> well,
15: I've got the Indian clubs and the paper tearing. Oh, no, no, go- Dick,
19: no, that won't help.
23: We had hoped to bring you some advance information on the new "Take It From Here" series, which starts on December the second. And so the other day, I went along to the producer's office.
15: Yes, well, I think it would be safe to say we've something up our sleeve. It's good. Uh, although, uh, don't you agree it would be a pity to give the show away by telling the listener too much at this stage, oh, Jim? Quite. But I can leave that to you. Yes, but well, uh, <clears throat> yes. Oh, well, the the program will um, it'll last for half an hour.
0: Yes. Uh,
15: be a lot of comedy in it oh, of uh, course uh, that amount of singing uh, you know
23: charles g- i get the impression that you're trying to stall on me no. where are they? where are frank
15: and dennis and the rest of the cast none of them around oh uh, no not today uh jingle no um well, a lot of work goes into a program of this sort, you know. We, 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 we've got to have a breather sometime. It'll come off it, Charlie. Well, you can take it. Everything's under control. By the time December the 2nd comes. I
12: did, Sheriff, I haven't a fair fair of socks on you, have you? I mean, uh, I laughed with the. Oh! <laughs> Engelman of the Remove, surely, is it? <laughs> 3 a.m. England, I think. <laughs> yeah. What? Oh, there, yeah. lad. Come to add to the chaos.
15: The chaos? Uh, Jimmy, please, I've just been telling Jingle how smoothly everything is going. You know, the, the whole show under control. Under control? Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's a good one. This boy's never
12: serious for a moment. Do you know, only yesterday I was saying to the director of cancelled appearances, that's Wilfred Pickles, you know, I said to him, Wilf, well, if you want a really good laugh, Get hold of young Charlie Maxwell. Uh, He's
23: terribly ticklish. Mister Jimmy, what's all this about chaos? I understood you had the whole
15: program all cut and dry. Oh, bless the lad. We've none of us even given this much of a (coughs) thought. You've been spoofing him, Charlie. Jimmy, be quiet. I've got trouble enough. I don't want to have to face an even uglier mess. Well,
12: I understood Bentley was in Australia. In Australia?
15: Charles, you didn't tell me that. Well, he yes,
12: does. yes. It seems that the kangaroos are fascinated because Bentley's got two pouches, one under each arm.
22: Yes,
23: but, Jimmy, he was billed in the Radio Times to appear today.
12: Well, that's Maxwell for you. Love's a jape. Next thing, he'll be telling you the scriptwriters aren't in
23: Australia uh, hey either. Jimmy, um, Frank and
12: Dennis... In the Antipodes. Oh, Gold <laughs> star, Engelman. I can see you've been swatting up your geography prep. Yes, yes, the two boys are out there trying to write some original jokes, or even some aboriginal jokes. Did oh, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> you <didn't> hear that? He <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Good, wasn't it? laughs> <laughs> didn't
15: like that, Charles. <laughs> um, well, no.
12: I, I must be off now. I've got to just pop on and see how Joy is. You know, she's been a bit out of the
15: way. Yeah, um, you mean, Joy Nichols is ill? Oops. No, no, Jingle. It's it's nothing serious. It's, um. I think it's just something to eat.
23: Well, all the same, the old favourites will be back. And in these last 30 minutes, we've thumbed through the index, a little more than that, and glanced
12: at the preparation of some of the items which you'll be hearing between now and the end of the year. And the emphasis, if I may place it, is on some. Good listening.
0: On to our penultimate clip. And this is Ingrid Pitt on BBC Radio London in the 1970s, talking about horror films and her appearances on horror films. And she had done quite a few. Ingrid. Ingrid. Well, I
20: don't know. It's just something that Peter Cushing did, which I can't quite forgive him. Every time I see The Vampire Lovers, the way he cuts my head off, I don't like it. And I feel it every time. And it's...
14: Terrible.
20: <laughs> <laughs> the steak goes into here, and I don't like it going into ro- just there. You understand, Mike? No, well,
22: yes, I only so. want to put Hammer, <laughs> Hammer's point of view is that we would never have let Peter Cushing cut Ingrid's head off if we had not had two to start with. <laughs> you don't forget, this was the first of the Dracula films that Hammer had made, and so all the, the, the garlic flowers and... <coughs> all that sort of thing was new, as far as we were concerned, was new to the audience. So This about is g- something <coughs> we had to put up and explain. Now you don't even have to explain. You so, hate garlic flowers. So in, in no, that, that really first you know. film,
17: you're in the horror yeah. of Dracula, you're at great pains to make clear to everybody when the guy says research on vampires, exactly what a vampire was all about. You had to explain why yeah. the garlic was in the room. Right. They still
22: you do. Uh, let me just correct Jimmy mm. uh, on this, Jim. Uh, even today, now, in, particularly in the modern one, but even in uh, upcoming ones, uh, it's still necessary we because of, of that new audience that you them. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Remind, yeah. Them remind them. All. And, yes. you, and what, yes. you reassure them. Yes. Well, you well, see, it. if you analyse all these. This, <coughs> no, I'm not suggesting we've got the time nor the computer to do it, but there are standard scenes in every. Dracula film. Yes. But like the must, carrots. they are an essential. Bl- you block them in first and you write a story around that. You you must must have them which under are the new
17: the, circumstances? The essential scenes of the stake. Well, you've just, you've just talked
22: about one, which is setting up the scene of how you can dispose of a vampire. Also, as Terry said, you must let the audience know that when you drive the stake through the heart of some and not others, depending on why they have been vampirised, it's either a relief or a killing then you have to have the scene of the relief or the killing. I mean, there's a whole set of circumstances.
17: Another one I've noticed is the, is the Latin priest reciting the, the exorcism or the Latin words. Or whatever. This is again one, you know, which you repeatedly use as a standard device. Well, again,
22: it is part of the whole thing. I'd, although the, there's a funny point here, I must say, for years and years and years, where the Catholic influence has been so strong in all these horror films, it's uh, only lately that in the Catholic countries they have accepted horror films. Where they really, for years and years, have had the biggest propaganda they could possibly
17: have bought. Because of that religious element.
22: Well, they haven't quite understood them for some reason. I mean, recently, two of our biggest successes have been in Ireland. Because horror films have not been allowed in there for years and years and years. But if only they'd understood them at the beginning, they should have been the first films yes, in there. They're tremendously there. Yeah.
20: Yes, they thought they were sacrilege, but like they were quite it. in the contrary. I'd like to say
0: this to Right, Enid Blyden for the grown-ups, i tell you that. <laughs> now, was Alfred Hitchcock in there? Was he in one of those horror films? I don't know. You tell me. I can't see inside my computer, can you? Or is Alfred lurking in the very final clip? Or is it in fact, Michael Knowles you can hear instead with Alfred Marks? I don't know. You can judge. This is Eric Sykes and Hattie Jakes. Sykes and a big, big show from 2nd of April, 1971. Sykes and Hattie talking about Britain's first moonshot. Four, three,
6: two, one, zero.
14: Greenwich, meantime. Well, that was a good send-off for the show,
6: wasn't it? <laughs> and I wonder how many of you thought that we were in that rocket. But... <laughs> Even Eric wouldn't be foolhardy enough to do a show from one of those. Excuse me. Hello. Eric, where are you? What do you mean, guess?
9: <laughs> oh, all right. Are
6: you at Mrs. Butterworth? Eric, I can't stand here all day playing guessing games with you. Where are you?
8: I'll tell you what, I'll give you a clue. Clue number one, coming up. Right? <coughs> Say the evening of the world.
6: <laughs> You're in the post office tower?
8: No, no. Clue number two. All systems are go.
6: Those croons. I warned you. You're in the doctor's.
8: No, I'm not. I'll tell you what. Look, as I gaze out of my window, I can see Africa, India, Jamaica. Are you
6: in Paddington? (laughs) She'll never
8: get it. Listen, I'll give it to you. You know that rocket that went up just before the show?
6: Yes. Well, I'm in it. Eric, if you don't get round here right away, that may very well be the case. Ha! Look, you've got a television set on the stage, have you not? Yes. Would you switch it on, please? He's never up in a rocket. Make getting pity if he gets on a chair. <gasps> eric
8: I can see you. Who lives to invade with you?
9: <laughs>
8: we're not in bed. You have to lie like this. It's one of the rules. You know the Russian rocket Vostok, the American rocket Apollo 13? Well, this is Britain's answer. Manchester one <laughs>
6: Manchester won, and Eric is there. When all the world laughed and twisted the lion's tail, one man stood firm. Eric, dedicated, burning with a patriotic fervor. There was Eric McCressy, Cressy, car, Vanoclava, and Eric in Manchester. As long as there are Britons, there will be ellips for
9: Elizabeth, England, and the
6: St. (laughs) George. He isn't really in the rocket, but I rather like that speech.
0: (laughs) Well, there you go then. Another hour and a half has passed rather quickly, and it's time for me to go. I can hear my tea is being cooked by she who must be obeyed, so I must rush off and do as Naresh tells me and be a good boy and lay the table otherwise I, I shall get into trouble, and I don't want that because I'm probably the happiest I've ever been in my entire life, right now isn't that good to know And don't tell anybody about that because it's meant to be a secret okay, right, I'll be back in May and you'll see, or hear I should say, more Chris Perry from the Collider Pod in May, for now I'm signing off. Yes, darling, I'm coming the rest. Au revoir. Bye. (laughs)